0: Well, this morning, we are in week seven of our series through the book of Philippians. We have one more week after this, and then we'll start our Christmas series. Uh, We're in a passage this morning. We're in Philippians chapter four, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Philippians chapter four, we're in a passage where Paul talks about a topic that is universally agreed upon, but also widely unexperienced or widely missed out on, and it's the topic of unity. Everyone really believes in the importance of unity. You're never going to find somebody who says, ah, who cares? Unity, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we get along. It doesn't matter if we work together. Whether you run a business, whether you're on a sports team, whether you're in a church, whether you're in a family gathering, whether you're in your home or just in your marriage, everyone agrees that unity matters. However, unity is a very evasive thing in our world, isn't it? You know, we're in a time right now where the World Cup is happening, this global sports phenomenon where nations from around the world are competing for this trophy. And it's interesting to see that these are uh, matches that are supposed to unite countries right? Uh, On Friday, the United States of America, they played against England, and it ended in a 0-0 tie, which I know is why half of you hate soccer, but it was still a wonderful match to watch because I'm a soccer fan, and it was interesting. Afterwards, I went online. I was on my Twitter feed and just reading some of the commentary, and the nation of England, instead of being united around their team, they were so divided, They're tearing each other down. They're tearing the players down. They're saying, this player should have played instead of this player. And a global event that's supposed to unify countries actually just poured gasoline on the fire of their lack of unity. Unity is widely appreciated, but incredibly difficult to experience. And in this passage, Paul is addressing this. And we're going to start in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul, he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. These are two women. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, a book like Philippians in the Bible we call this an epistle, which means it was a letter that was written. Many of the letters in the New Testament were written by this man named Paul to churches that he helped begin or had a part in uh, in their development. And when we study letters or epistles, we call them occasional documents, which simply means this that there was an occasion that prompted the writing of the letter and we're really only hearing one half of the conversation. So it's sort of like Listening into someone's phone call, but you can't hear what's being said on the other side. And so when we study books like Philippians, one of the primary tasks in studying this book is to try to reconstruct as much as possible what happened that prompted Paul to write what he wrote. And if we don't do that work, by the way, we will often misinterpret epistles. And sometimes it's very hard, but sometimes it's very clear, and Paul makes it very clear here for us. He's writing this because there's two women, most likely leaders in the church, Philippi who are not living in unity together and it's public and it's becoming an issue and it's a threat to the church and it's a threat to the gospel and Paul here we don't know what we don't know is we don't know the nature of the disagreement we don't know why they have fallen out with one another but we know that there is a disagreement and that Paul is asking them to agree in the Lord And just from those two verses, there's four things that we learn. I'm going to be quick with this. There's four things that we learn about what Paul thinks about unity. And the first thing is this, is that Paul believes that unity is not optional. Unity is not optional. Now, this this point in the letter, uh, Paul has shifted from reminding us about the gospel to calling us to live our lives in line with the gospel. So in the second half of Philippians, I told you this a few weeks ago, I warned you, Paul had shifted from reminding us about who Jesus is and what he's done for us to saying, now here's how you should live. He, he kind of goes from pointing up to Christ to pointing his finger in our lives. But at this point in his writing, Paul gets very specific. It's actually kind of awkwardly specific, and here's why. These letters that Paul wrote, they would have been read out loud in the synagogues when the people of God gathered together. So I want you to try to envision this. The church at Philippi is sitting in what was probably a large room, the largest room in the largest house of any of the believers, and they were sitting in this room, and someone gets up there, one of the leaders of the church in Philippi, and begins to read Paul's letter, and they're reading through, and they're reading through, and then they get to this point, and Paul says, I entreat you, Yodia, and you, Syntyche. And I can guarantee you the room was like, talk about awkward. Anyone have any awkward moments this past Thursday at family gatherings? This was awkward, and I'm sure everyone's like, ooh, like, Yodia and Syntyche. Like, everyone knows it's the elephant in the room, and now Paul's calling it out. And Paul, by calling it out, is making one thing clear. I'm not going to avoid this issue. I'm not going to spare you the awkwardness. Because unity, in Paul's perspective, is not Optional Unity is something that, as the people of God, we can and should expect. In fact, it's something that we should fight for. Paul is saying, do not settle for disunity. Don't say, well, that's just the way it's always going to be. Don't accept it, because unity matters. In fact, the Scriptures teach us that unity is a place where the Lord commands his very blessing on his people. So when we live in unity together as the church, there is a blessing that comes from God upon us at Trinity we have these values that we try to live by and our three super values they're out in the lobby up on the wall are gospel mission and community that's what those are our three biggest values of the church gospel mission and community and a lack of unity or disunity is a threat to each of those things it's obviously a threat to community it is also a threat to mission Because when we're divided, we can't be as effective with the mission that Christ has called us to do, but it's also a threat to the gospel because a lack of unity calls into question the truth of the gospel. In fact, Jesus in his great prayer said, one of the ways that the world would know you are mine is that you love one another. And so to Paul, unity is not optional. The second thing that we learn here is that unity may require outside help. In verse 3, he says, I ask you, true companion, to help these women. We don't know who that true companion is. Maybe it was the person who brought the letter. Maybe it was uh, someone who was a leader in Philippi. We don't know who who it is. They knew who it was. But sometimes, maybe you've learned this, that working through issues may require help from a third party, specifically someone who is objective and qualified to help. And when we need that sort of help, we should welcome that help. We should appreciate the gift of outside perspective and expertise. There's a pastor down in Atlanta named Annie Stanley who talks about the curse of familiarity. And the curse of familiarity is this. The longer you're close to something, the less likely you are to see it properly. The more you're around something, the harder it is for you to see it for what it really is. And that's also true, by the way, of your relationships. And that's also true of the, all the areas in our life where we're fighting for unity. And so some of you, there's a lack of unity in your home. There's a lack of unity in your marriage. You're not going to fix it on your own. You have to be open to this idea that sometimes unity requires outside help. It's a gift. The third thing that Paul says here is that unity is a struggle even for the faithful. Paul describes these two women with these phrases. They labored side by side with me in the gospel. So these are women who were faithfully working alongside Paul. When Paul spent his years in Philippi, these women worked with Paul. And then he goes on to say that their names are written in the book of life. Paul wanted there to be no question about Euodia and Syntyche standing before the Lord. These two women are believers. They're serving the kingdom. They belong to Jesus, but they're not agreeing. And this teaches us that unity sometimes is an issue even for the faithful. Because sometimes we might naively think, well, if everybody in this church just loved Jesus, we would all get along. That's not necessarily true. There are ways in which we can be faithful to Jesus, love Jesus, and still disagree on certain things, and still struggle to maintain unity in certain ways. Passionate agreement about the mission can lead to passionate disagreement about the method. And that happens in organizations and companies all the time. People are passionate about the mission, why they exist, and it leads to passionate disagreement about how to accomplish the mission. And that's okay. Because unity is a struggle even for the faithful. This disagreement is not a sin issue, which means sometimes a lack of unity or a struggle for unity is not always related to sin in people's lives. It's just because we're not always going to see eye to eye. And the last thing that Paul teaches us here is that unity matters because kingdom work always requires a team. Listen, if anyone could have done it on his own, it was Jesus. And yet what did he do? He gathered a team. Gathering a team and working as a team teaches us how to appreciate each other and share our gifts and our lives. And so four things that we learned just real quickly from these two verses about what Paul thinks about unity. Then Paul keeps writing, and it feels like Paul leaves the topic and moves on to something else, but he really doesn't. And I want us to see this, that in this next portion, Paul actually gives us sort of a way to fight for unity. So going to the next verse, in verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. So I want you to picture this room in Philip everybody's sitting there. Yodi and Syntyche have just been called out. And everybody's sitting there. And those words and that tension in the room, and it's kind of ringing in everyone's ears. And then the person who's reading the letter keeps reading. And with that tension still in people's hearts and minds, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God. Now here, you know he's linking back to this topic that he started with, because he started about a need for unity and agreement and peace between individuals. So now he comes back to it. You do these things, verses 3, 4, 4, 5, and 6, verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. And when we're in a season of a lack of unity, what we really need is our hearts guarded and our minds guarded in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, and then he finishes this passage with this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Five ways to fight for unity, and as I share this this morning, I want you to think about this maybe as our church, I mean, we're a very unified church, but how do we grow in unity, so five ways, maybe you can think about where you work, teams that you're on at your workplace, Uh, maybe you can think about your home, your family. Maybe you need to think about your marriage. Maybe you need to think about important relationships. But all of these apply to the battle for unity. And the first point is this. We have to find our joy in the right place. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. What is your greatest joy in life? Where do you find your joy? Here's what I've learned. Wherever you find your greatest joy, when that thing is threatened, the you that shows up isn't great. On Black Friday, some people's greatest joy is a deal. And the you that shows up, when someone gets the last 65-inch screen TV in front of them, you've seen the footage, right? You've seen what happens in these stores on Black Friday. It's ugly. It's ugly. People the day before that were giving thanks are now exchanging blows because of something that they didn't get. The irony, the juxtaposition of Thanksgiving and Black Friday, I hope the irony is not lost on our society. But whatever your greatest joy is, when it's under threat, the you that shows up is not the you that you're exactly proud of. And here's why this is such a threat to unity. If you don't find your joy in Christ, if you find your joy in being right, then when someone disagrees with you, the you that shows up, you won't like If your greatest joy is in being respected, and then somebody questions your authority or your perspective or your opinion, then the you that shows up will not be great. If your greatest joy is in winning, whether it's winning arguments or winning in situations, then when you lose, or someone tells you that you've lost, the you that shows up won't be great. My youngest daughter, Maddie, who's eight, we play board games together. She's, we used to play Princess Yahtzee all the time. That was our game. Now we've moved on to this sequence uh, kids game. And so we, she's not a great loser. She got it from her mother. But she's not a, she's not a great loser. I'm kidding. She got it from me. You know that. Uh, she's not a great loser. And so we've had to teach her, Maddie, when you lose, you need to look at the other person, shake their hand, and say, And it takes a little reminders. It takes a little reminding every now and then, but she'll do it. And it's so cute. She'll just shake your little hand. She'll take a little hand, shake your hand. She'll say, congratulations. (laughs) We're not great losers. And if your greatest joy is in winning, then losing is, it feels like the end of the world to you. Your emotions are out of control. The earth is giving way around you. And listen, I, I relate to that. I hate losing. I hate when my team loses. I hate everything about losing. However, if you rejoice in winning more than you rejoice in Christ, then unity will always be fragile for you. You'll always be one loss away from breaking unity. If your greatest joy is in getting things your way, then when comfort and convenience are not there for you or someone seems to... Uh, bring discomfort into your life or seems to inconvenience you in some way by asking you to do something when your day was perfectly planned out or asking you to help when you don't want to help, Um, it'll be hard for you to be living in unity. See, finding your joy in the right place is so crucial to unity because finding our joy in things other than Christ will always lead us to a place of division and dividing along lines that we shouldn't be dividing on. Finding our greatest joy in Christ doesn't just change what we believe. I want you to hear this this morning. It changes how we think about, talk about, and treat people who don't believe the same as us. See, if you find your greatest joy in being on the inner circle, then you have to tear down everybody that's not in your circle. If you find your greatest joy in having power, then you always have to get more power and step on people to get that power. But if your greatest joy is in Christ, then you're free to talk about, think about, and treat people who are different than you with grace and with kindness. So there's, a, there's a, a buzzword in our society right now is tolerance. And the, the, the problem with the way that society uses the word tolerance is tolerance is, if you, can envision, um, if you can envision your worldview, all the things that you believe to be true about how someone ought to live, as fitting inside this imaginary circle, right? So this circle represents your worldview, your ethics, your morals, your values, what you believe to be true. Well, society is now defining tolerance as you got to make that circle bigger to include everybody else's worldview and perspective. But that's not actually tolerance, because that is actually changing your worldview. That's not tolerance. Making your circle bigger is not tolerance. Making your circle bigger is having a different worldview. Tolerance is about how do you talk about, think about, and treat people who are not inside your circle. And so Christians should have the unique resources found in Christ to see people who have different ethics, different morals, different values, different perspectives than us, and still love them and serve them, see them as our neighbor, lay our lives down for them without having to embrace everything that they believe to be true. That, making your circle bigger, if you want a word for that, that's not tolerance, that's syncretism. That's just absorbing, that's assimilating, that's compromising, that's saying, okay, well, I feel for you, so now I also believe what you believe. That's not tolerance. That's changing what you believe. Tolerance is how do you treat people outside of your worldview and your perspective. And as Christians, if we find our joy in the right place, and even people who don't think like us, act like us, and believe like us, we can love them well. Our joy must be in the Lord and not in getting things our way. Even when someone disagrees with me, things don't go my way, I'm misunderstood, I'm disrespected. Unity is not at threat because I find my joy in the right place. Second, I love the practicality of Paul here. Be reasonable. Anyone felt in the last three years that you just want to tell people, be reasonable? Like, come on, let's just like, let's be reasonable. Be reasonable. Paul's word is reasonableness, which is really hard to say. So I'm not going to say it many times. But he says, let your reasonableness be known to others. Be reasonable. Reasonableness is a spiritual matter. And to be reasonable is to be level-headed, to be gentle, to have common sense, to not blow up at every little thing. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5, Paul is writing to a young leader named Timothy who's leading a church in Ephesus and he says to Timothy in the light of leadership, you keep your head in all situations. I love that advice. I think it's one of the best pieces of advice that Paul gives to Timothy and Timothy. He says, "Keep your head in all situations. You're a leader, keep your head." That's one of the number one things I look for in leaders. Do they keep their heads about themselves when everybody else is losing their head? And for the last 3 years, I feel like everyone losing their heads. Be reasonable. Fight for unity. Earlier this week, I saw a post online by a pastor in New York City named Rich Viotis, and he said this, in a world torn by rage and anxiety, does that describe our world? A world torn by rage and anxiety, one of the greatest gifts followers of Jesus are called to offer is simple, non-anxious, Calm presence. Just to be present in a simple, calm, reasonable way. And he clarifies it this way not a presence removed from reality, we're not ostriches with our head in the ground, but a presence that refuses to be shaped by it. So it's not a presence that is ignorant or removed from reality, but it's a presence that refuses to be shaped, to be twisted, to be torn by it. Be reasonable. Now, you can't be reasonable if you won't listen and learn. One of the acts of fighting for unity is being willing to listen and learn and position ourselves to hear other people's stories and to understand other people's perspective. You know, listening is not waiting your turn to talk, right? Listening. Asking more questions, positioning yourself as a learner. One of the greatest gifts that we can have is the gift of curiosity. Instead of jumping to conclusions and making assumptions, just being a curious person, being reasonable. And being reasonable, by the way, means not confusing unity with uniformity. Those are not the same things. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is everyone looks the same, does the same things, acts the same way. Uniformity. But unity is present within diversity. So even though we're very different people from different ethnic backgrounds, different economic makeups, all of these things that are different about us, different political views, different things like that, we can still be unified in the midst of our diversity because uniformity is not the goal of the church. Unity is the goal of the church. God doesn't need us all to think the same and be the same. He loves the different parts of the body and the various ways in which we are different from one another. You know, have you ever heard the old saying, two heads are better than one? The premise being that, you know, multiple perspectives are better than one. Well, there's been research that's done on that that says it's not always true. Two heads is not better than one unless those two heads see it differently than each other. If you have a group of four people in your life and you all see everything the same and you think, well, I've got perspective because I've got three good friends, you don't actually have added perspective. You have more people affirming what you already believe to be true. Two heads is only better than one if the two people see things differently. A team of four or five is only good if everybody has a slightly different perspective. And a church can only really grow in Christ and be unified if each of us is diverse from one another in some way. You don't all want to be me. We don't all want to be you. And that's okay because we can be reasonable because unity and uniformity are not the same thing. We can embrace our differences. Okay, third thing that Paul says here in this text, and this is where Paul really seems to change directions. Very, it seems like Paul's just like kind of spitting random statements now. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be reasonable. And then all of a sudden, the Lord is at hand. And they're like, Paul, what is going on? What, what are you, how are you getting from this to this to this? The Lord is at hand is a simple phrase that means the Lord is coming. He's near. We don't know when Christ will return, but he's near. And Paul's saying one of the ways that we fight for unity is we remind each other that the Lord is coming. The Lord is at hand is the gift of perspective. And here's the gift of perspective that we get. When you're in the midst of fighting and disagreement with your spouse, with your parents, with someone in the church, with someone at your workplace, to remind yourself that the Lord is coming gives you the gift of perspective where you'll say, someday I will look back at this moment in the light of eternity and I will marvel at how little of a situation stole my joy. How little of a disagreement caused me so much angst and so much anxiety. How small this is in the light of eternity. And so Paul is saying to you, Odi and Sintyke, hey, the Lord is at hand. You guys are fighting over things. It's not that they don't matter, but don't forget that Jesus is coming back. We have a work to do and someday we'll be with him. And when we're with him, we'll look back at all the things that divided us and split us and we'll go, oh my goodness. That thing meant so much to me back then. Remind each other. I I read this article, uh, I think a year ago, by a lady named Brianna Lambert. I I loved it. She said this in her article. She said, the next time you see two Christians who can't seem to see eye to eye on social media, imagine their future. Imagine them in in heaven, embracing each other in perfect humility, reunited in a scene to rival Joseph and his brother's. Imagine the the tears that will fall as each one feels genuine repentance for whatever assumptions, carelessness, and short-sightedness pass between them. Have you looked ahead toward this day? Have you imagined it for yourself when your own blinders, preconceived notions, and pride will truly be gone? Our future not only mends the brokenness between saints, but, and this is an important part of it, God will also exercise true justice on the wicked. Every, every public and secret deed will come to light. When we look toward this future, our hearts soften in the present. It eases our wounds as we put our slights and even our deepest cuts into the hands of our Redeemer. We are able to wait for the day when justice will be done, and we will join with the pure, spotless bride of Christ in true unity. We can trust that the Lord will make all things right someday, so we don't have to make everything right here and now. And we can know that someday we will be united perfectly with Jesus and with one another. And if it will be true then, then it should be true now. And so we remind each other that the Lord is coming and that he's at hand. Paul also says to bring everything to the Lord. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What's Paul saying here? Paul's saying we gotta pray about things more than we complain about things. Pray about it more than you gossip about it. Pray about it more than you debate about it. Pray about it more than you argue about it. Pray about it more than you post about it. Pray about it more than you worry about it. We can give our anxieties to the Lord. We have three options when it comes to our anxieties and our fears. We can hold on to them, we can push them onto others, or we can give them to the Lord. And Paul is teaching us here with your fears and with your tears, there's a place to go with them, and it's upward. Pray your fears, pray your tears, your your anxious thoughts. Give them to the Lord. He can handle them. He knows them. Bring them before him. Instead of going to your friends over and over and talking badly about somebody else, whether it's a friend, a family member, or even your spouse, instead of doing that over and over, how constantly are you bringing that person to the Lord? That relationship to the Lord in prayer. Pray about it more than you complain about it. Pray about it more than you talk about it. Pray about it more than you post about it. Paul is teaching us here, don't be anxious, but make your, uh, your needs known to the Lord. Bring everything to the Lord in prayer. What is the situation or the relationship this morning that's causing you the most anxiety, worry, fear, and concern? And then ask yourself this kind of gut check question. How much have I prayed about it? How often am I praying about it? Am I praying about? It? Am I bringing it to the Lord more than I'm bringing it to others? As Paul is saying, here's a way forward in unity: bring everything to the Lord. And then the last thing he says here is, "Mind your mind; pay attention to what you think." Let's look at it one more time. Pastor Antonia is going to join me up here. We're going to finish. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, now Paul here is giving us a list of things that we ought to think about. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely commendable, excellence, worthy of praise. Think about these things. You know, unity doesn't break apart between people first. It actually breaks apart first between your ears, (laughs) in your minds. The mind is a factory. It takes data, and it creates stories. And a lot of times, the breakdown in unity in a church, in a workplace, in a home, in a relationship, is because of your thinking. Your mind. You're taking things and you're thinking about things that are negative. You're thinking, you're thinking thoughts like, um, they, know that that, they, they know exactly how much that bothered me and that's why they did that thing. You're thinking things like, I'm, I should not be overlooked. I'm more important than I'm being treated. People don't see me. They don't understand. Your mind is a powerful thing, right? your mind shapes your emotions it has actually the power to shape your future in certain ways and paul is saying here if we're going to be a church that is unified if we're going to be a people that's unified you got to mind your mind here's another way of saying it you got to pay attention to what you pay attention to what do you think about all day where does your mind go when you think about that situation what are the first 3 4 5 thoughts that come into your mind when you think about that person what are the first 3 4 5 thoughts that come into your mind you have to are they lovely are they true are they pure are they commendable Are they excellent? Are they worthy of praise? See, Paul is getting in our business here. Well, we shouldn't feel bad because you already and Syntyche had it worse, but he's getting in our business this morning. And he's saying, you gotta mind your mind. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. And then he finishes all of it with this powerful thought in verse nine. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things, and I love how he finishes this portion. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. I actually kind of thought he would end this passage by saying, and the peace of God will be with you. But he doesn't. Here's the last thing we learned from Paul. Unity is not just about the presence of the peace of God. Unity is about the presence of the God of peace. Peace. He doesn't just want to give you peace. He wants to be present with you. Is there a breakdown in a relationship in your life? Are you sensing a lack of unity? Have your feelings been hurt? Are you offended? Are you bothered? Are you annoyed? Don't just ask for the peace of God. Ask for the God of peace. He doesn't just love us from a distance. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He will show up in the midst of our struggles and our disagreement and our disunity. So this morning, God, we come before you as a church, and we ask right now that you would fill our church family, yes, with your peace, yes, the peace of God, but also that the God of peace would be present, real, and known in our lives, in our church family. Help us this morning to live and walk in unity.